0: This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. October 2012 ended with a storm named Sandy, downgraded from a hurricane by the time it arrived in Connecticut, flooding sections of shoreline towns from Greenwich to New London and destroying homes. Some neighborhoods weren't able to open roads until weeks later. Inland parts of the state also saw wind damage and power outages. The Connecticut Post reports some 6,000 property owners on the Connecticut coast and nearly 1,300 inland applied for assistance through FEMA. Climate change will continue to bring extreme weather, including hurricanes and flooding from storm surges. And globally, countries are not doing enough to curb greenhouse gas emissions, the latest report just out from the United Nations. Ten years later, how have Connecticut communities adapted to the changing climate, and what resiliency plans are in place? Coming up where we live, we talk with the Connecticut Institute for Resilience and Climate Adaptation, CIRCA, that's at UConn, and we hear from the Long Island Soundkeeper. Now, if your home was impacted by Superstorm Sandy, or if you live along the shore now, we want to hear from you. How are you preparing for future extreme weather? What about sea level rise? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888 720 WMPR or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us first on the phone is Dick Mahusky, who lives in Fairfield, Connecticut, and he and his family experienced Superstorm Sandy. Dick, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Lucy. Good morning.
0: Now, the New Haven Register described your town, Fairfield, this way after Superstorm Sandy in 2012. Quote, Fairfield's sprawling shoreline area resembled a post-apocalyptic twilight zone, blacked out, sand and rubble strewn, populated only by police at a command post set up at Veterans Park, uniformed National Guardsmen manning strategic checkpoints a mile from the water, and everywhere utility and cleanup trucks. Dick, what do you remember about the impending forecast and then the aftermath?
2: Well, on the impending forecast, it, you know, it certainly said uh, there's a big storm, hurricane slash nor'easter. It, it changed from hurricane to just a, a strong storm after it left New Jersey, I guess. And we had, you know, our our municipal uh, fathers gave gave everybody fair warning. You know, if you live down the beach, it's going to get very windy and it's going to be a very high tide, so evacuate to higher areas. Mm -hmm. Now, me being a stubborn New Englander, I did not evacuate because how how bad could it be? And we're not on the water, so it's not going to be bad. And then at uh, 8 o'clock at night, It it, it started blowing, and the wind was at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, started blowing. Then 8 o'clock at night, I look out, and I said to my wife, "Uh uh-oh, the water is coming up the driveway, and it's four hours until high tide, because high tide was going to be at midnight that night. Um, By this time, the strong winds had really subsided, but out on the Sound, the storm surge was still there, having been previously driven into the Sound, I guess. So over the next uh, two hours, the water came into our house. We wound up. We have a split-level house, so the ground floor room and the garage wound up with 16 inches of water in it by the time the the water stopped rising mm-hmm. around 10 o'clock. Uh, our basement was totally full. Yeah. And the day after, and the day after that, and the day after that was as you just read from the New Haven Register. It was like a war zone here.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And you go. You go a mile two miles inland, and the day after' is like yeah there 's some tree limbs down, but that was it, but down here we were we were out of luck for a while
0: mm-hmm. now when the storm uh, when you saw the the water keep coming at some point that night, were you concerned maybe you should have evacuated
2: uh you know it 's like how high <laughs> in for a penny in for a pound, how high can it get gee we're we We abandoned our ground floor uh level room and went up, you know, what, four feet four feet higher and we said, We're gonna we're gonna be fine and we had flashlights, so No, we I I did not I did not second guess myself.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking back to the the latest hurricane that hit Florida and the people that chose not to evacuate. Unfortunately, that did not work out for them. So we're glad that you and your family were safe after Superstorm Sandy. So then what happened? So you got all this water in your home. I understand this was your retirement home, uh, Dick. And so, you know, how did you move on and figure out, okay, how am I going to you know, get this water out of here and do the necessary repairs?
2: Well... <clears throat> That that afternoon, we were walking around the neighborhood. That after- this is <laughs> serendipity, I guess. We were walking around the neighborhood that afternoon, and this little pickup truck with this young guy in it stopped and said, "Hi, you know, I'm a carpenter. I do all kind of stuff. I do cleanup. If you need some help, here's my number. After you know, help after this storm." So, I had I had that in my pocket. So the next day, I called him. I said, "Hey, you got a pump? I got to get this water out of my out of my cellar." So, um, you know, he he came with his pump and pumped us out. And uh, actually, we took advantage of his carpentry skills because we had to rebuild our lower our lower room because that was all flooded. So, between him and then getting you know, an electrician and an HVAC guy to take care of the panel that was drowned because it was in the panel uh, in the basement. And take care of the boiler that was drowned because it was in the basement. So we just uh, built our built our way back.
0: Mm. Now you had flood insurance and savings to help you do so. What about your neighbors?
2: Um. Well, post post Sandy, yeah, we were we were fortunate because we had some savings, and it's 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 kind of like one of in hindsight, everybody who thinks about gee, do I have a rainy day fund for a rainy day? It certainly comes in handy because um, a lot of a lot of my neighbors are older, live in small Cape Cape homes, and they were getting by on their fixed income. But when it came to a sudden uh, financial need or loss, they couldn't handle it. So one of the things that has happened to the neighborhood over time is many of those small properties have been sold to developers who knocked down little Cape and put up uh, a three thousand, thirty-five hundred. Square foot
0: house
2: mm. um, the good news is that these new homes are all built to FEMA standards, so as you drive around this neighborhood now, you see a, a lot of stairs to get up into houses
0: mm. and that 's something that you and your wife did so you you elevated your house you were able yes, to do we that did.
2: Mm-hmm. yes um, there after After Sandy, there was a grant program that was established, and there were uh, there were a total of sixty nine residences in Fairfield who applied for that grant, and 44 of them, I think, were approved for the grant, and I don't know how many, but all of the approved grants were not executed for one reason or another, Mm -hmm. but we executed ours, and we thought, this is a good idea because it'll just improve the resale value of the house being FEMA compliant, Mm -hmm. so we did that.
0: And can you share with us uh, the total cost that you had to put into your, your home in Fairfield?
2: Yeah. After the storm? Yeah, I look I looked back actually after I spoke with Tess the other day and um it's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> is it too is it too much? I don't know. we'll, we'll see we'll see when we when we sell the house. Mm-hmm. Um there were there were actually there were actually two things that happened because as I said, right after Sandy we rebuilt the house and when you when you looked at that all in, that cost us fifty one thousand dollars to rebuild the house. We did get some insurance assistance with that. Um, my my homeowner's insurance, we wound up getting seven thousand from that. FEMA had a, an initial grant program for our losses, and because it was declared as a disaster area, so we got nineteen thousand from FEMA and then after that there was a um connecticut disaster recovery fund i guess it was and that was additional federal money and that was intended to reimburse residents for unmet needs meaning money that you spent but didn't get back from other insurances so that was nine thousand dollars so in all uh, the the original cost us $51,000 out of pocket. We got reimbursed 37000 So it actually cost $14,000 out of my pocket to rebuild the house after the initial storm. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the things that you had to have a intact, good home to take advantage of the elevation right. grant. So after that, we elevated it. And it was, it was like Two hundred thousand dollars was the a uh, hundred and ninety six actually hundred ninety six thousand dollars was the estimate that we got approved, and we executed that and it wound up uh costing like two hundred and nineteen thousand dollars all in that was end of the day you know landscaping everything so um so that's it so it 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 actually Let's see. It actually cost cost me $72,000 at the end of the day, Mm. and that seemed like a good idea because the house is sitting high and proud. The next storm comes, the only thing I have to worry about is getting the vehicles up to high ground so they don't get destroyed. Mm.
0: You're hearing Dick Mahusky here where we live. He lives in Fairfield, Connecticut. He's describing what he and his uh, wife uh, went through after Superstorm Sandy. Again, uh, this week, 10 years ago, Superstorm Sandy uh, hitting uh, Connecticut. uh, A lot of of damage along uh, Connecticut's coastal towns as well as inland damage as well from the wind. We all remember those power outages. You can join us as we reflect back, but also think about the future share again, the importance of resiliency, um, mitigating strategies to deal with the changing climate. I mentioned sea level rise. We'll be talking more about that in just a little bit. You can join us, 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So right now we're talking with you, Dick, about what you had to do individually uh, to shore up your home uh, for other threats uh, related to the changing climate. But I understand you also joined Fairfield's Flood and Erosion Control Board. Tell us why. Tell us why. Well, (laughs) because
2: because I suffered and said, gee, how can we not let this happen again? Um, one of the one of the um, damages to our town's infrastructure, we have a pavilion down at one of our town beaches, and the foundations of that were undermined. So the the town established a it, it's Penfield Beach. So we, the town established a rebuilding committee, and I said, geez, you know that's something I might want to be involved in that. So, and I have a background in facilities management. So. Um, I said, let me, let me apply for that. So I, I put my hat in the ring to be appointed to that rebuilding committee. And they said, no, I'm sorry, we have, a, we have that all filled up. But by the way, we have an opening on the Flood and Erosion Control Board. And I said, hmm, what's Flood and Erosion Control Board? And long story short, it, it, the objective is to make our town and the individual residences more resilient to storms. And this is, coastal storms are the most dramatic because of the wind involved, because it takes the wind to drive up the water, but inland flooding is also a problem for those people who live along the stream banks. Um, So I got involved in that, and we, you know, we we work in association with the town's engineering department, because they're the ones who have the money, they can apply for the grants as the municipal entity. So, we try and work with them and encourage them to apply for grants and uh, we have outreach to the residents um, and we're just try and improve improve our town's resiliency
0: and are you um impressed or happy with what has been done so far? What are the challenges
2: it's slow the challenge the challenge- and this gets back to the rainy day fund the challenges are money you know but the town nobody wants their taxes to go up but you know, but do this for us, do that for us. So the challenge is, is the money. Uh, the other challenges are if you if you take it individually, someone of means might say, well, I'm just going to build a big seawall between me and Long Island Sound, and I'll be fat, dumb, and happy. But deep and the Army Corps of Engineers say, well, you know, not so fast. Maybe in the grand scheme of things, that's not the best idea. So there's there's tension between the regulators and the individual property owners or the municipality. But they're all our friends, right, Jim?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll be talking to Jim uh, after a break. But we do thank you for the time you've given us. Dick Mahusky, again, who lives in Fairfield. His home sustained some flooding damage after Superstorm Sandy. We're learning about uh, what he did uh, to help prepare uh, himself and his home uh, there in Fairfield for the next uh, storm. Dick, thank you for your time on the show. We really appreciate
2: it. You're very welcome.
0: You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. Again, 10 years since Sandy, Superstorm Sandy, hit Connecticut. What are your memories? Now, if you live in one of our shore towns, we'd want to hear from you about whether you had to rebuild or what improvements you've made to your home to prepare for future extreme weather. That includes sea level rise caused by our warming planet. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888 720 wmpr or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. On Friday, the Connecticut Institute for Resilience and Climate Adaptation, also known as CIRCA at UConn, hosts a morning event reflecting on Superstorm Sandy's anniversary. Again, that happened in our state 10 years ago. This week, the speakers will focus on progress and challenges since Sandy made landfall. Meanwhile, a new UN report says countries are failing to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to limit global warming to one and a half degrees Celsius. Joining us now on the phone is Jim O'Donnell, UConn Professor of Marine Sciences and Executive Director of CIRCA. Again, that's the Connecticut Institute for Resilience and Climate Adaptation. Jim, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks. When I talk about Circa, was this uh, created after Superstorm Sandy?
3: Yep. <laughs> after uh, 2014, I think it was created. So it took a few years for government to be organized, to uh, react. And uh, Circa was one of the first things I think that occurred after that.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I mentioned this latest UN report two weeks before climate talks begin in Egypt. You know, what's your perspective on the progress that uh, as, you know, in uh, you know, the whole world, uh, when we think about how countries are uh, working to curb emissions or maybe not doing enough, um, you know, there's not enough progress being made
3: well that's clearly true i mean, I'm so disappointed there's there's been a lot of progress that 's for sure, but it 's really not enough. We need to accelerate emissions reductions across the world.
0: When we think about Superstorm Sandy and how the shore towns were prepared or not so prepared, you know, what are some areas of progress uh, in this last decade?
3: Well, first, uh, people are much more aware, I think, of both climate change and sea level rise and its consequences uh, than they were in 2012. Um, but the and, and action has been taken within the state too, and as, as Dick said, you know it, it's very slow. Um, but let me just summarise a couple of things that have happened. One is circa was created, but then in addition, uh, the, the state has well, the state has done a lot in mitigation too. We've uh, arranged to buy wind power, for example, to replace gas-generated uh, uh, electricity. And we've extended the life of the nuclear generation site at Millstone, and both those things have been to reduce steel emissions largely from the state as a whole. And then on the resilience adaptation side, the state has organized uh, a lot of uh, town plans, the state's funded, supported plans, to allow towns to inventory what is at risk now, um, and also... Uh, provided funds and and ideas as to what they could do to reduce the risk to roads and houses and water treatment plants. This critical infrastructure was was really the first um, targets for for action. And there's there's been and there's work been done. The Walls have been built around water treatment plants in many coastal towns in Connecticut to try and protect them from things like sandy. Um and then recently, there's a, a new fund been really, uh, created by Deep. Uh, I think it's, it, it, there's a bond issue of I think it's 50 million dollars, and uh, towns can apply to do projects that would that would reduce their risk. I think the first year they're going to spend 10, and that program is open right now. Towns can apply for it.
0: Again, you can join our conversation as we talk about superstorm Sandy uh, 10 years ago this week uh, arriving in our state again. Homes were damaged uh, along uh, the shoreline and we saw wind damage, uh, sustained power outages, and we're talking about uh, ways that municipalities especially in these coastal communities have uh, worked on or been thinking about resiliency as Jim mentions our number 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter where we live. Let's talk about uh, the vulnerabilities that Connecticut has just based on uh, the fact our geography, uh, whether we look at past hurricanes and I mentioned sea level rise. Can you break it down for us, Jim?
3: Well, well, Connecticut is uh, special ge- uh, geological history. It makes it different from Long Island and New Jersey. And early after Sandy, I, I got some calls from people in K- western Connecticut asking about why Connecticut wasn't getting funds to rebuild their dune, because there was a lot of news about the hundreds of millions of dollars that was getting invested in New York to to, uh, protect Long Island, and then New Jersey to protect their beach towns. And the question was, well, how come we're not doing that in Connecticut? And the answer is pretty simple, (laughs) is that Connecticut's got different geology. We didn't really have very many big dunes along the shoreline. Connecticut was formed... Well, what we see now in Connecticut, that topography was formed really 10,000 years ago at the end of the last ice age, and retreating glaciers, you know, they uh, they left sand and gravel plains at the mouths of the, the valleys, and those are where Brantford and Milford and and uh, Fairfield are now located. So they're, they're extensive areas that are flat, just above sea level. And then at the, around the shoreline, there's a small dune and maybe a beach, and there's lots of creeks, etc., and some marshes. And that topography is quite complicated. And we built our towns over the last several hundred years in these flat areas that were close to the, the base of the hills where fresh water was, but close to navigable channels. And so you know, the, that, and that's sort of the problem is that we've got a, a lot of infrastructure and housing in low areas just above sea level. And so when we get a big storm, those areas will get flooded. And uh, that's been the case for the last 100 years. That hurricanes will flood areas that are just above sea level. Um, now, the problem is sea level rise is exacerbating that because the mean water level is going to go, it has been going up, and it's going to go up even more, irrespective of what happens to CO2 emissions in the next 50 years. Mm. It's going to go up, and it could be as much as 20 inches. The problem with that is that storms that that uh, didn't used to flood these low-lying areas, are going to flood them. And so what we expect to see is uh, things that are not as devastating as as a major hurricane would be, but, but they'll be flooding in these areas nevertheless, mm-hmm. just because the mean sea level is going to be 20 inches higher, up to 20 inches higher. You're hearing, Jim. So G- I think what, what we'll see is that, the, now the devastating hurricanes and things like sandy are going to continue to flood uh, a lot of a lot of these towns and it's going to be there's going to be damage but there'll be more uh, so sort of more frequent less damaging floods as well.
0: I wanted to remind our listeners, they're hearing Jim O'Donnell, UConn professor of marine sciences, executive director of CIRCA, the Connecticut Institute for Resilience and Climate Adaptation. Again, you can join us 888-720-9677 as we talk about Superstorm Sandy 10 years ago uh, this week, uh, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. You know, something you'd said about when we think about sea level rise. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of attention on extreme storms, but because of sea level rise, you know, how flooding um, will become more common. So the question that also comes out of all these discussions in the last uh, 10 years about resiliency is, you know, some, when we think about the power of municipalities, when it comes to zoning and, and, and code, um, you know, the structures that are taken down by uh, extreme weather or are susceptible uh, to flooding, you know, should they be able to rebuild, Jim? How do we answer that question?
3: Uh, well, that's a very controversial issue. Right. right. And, 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 and it's being addressed all around the world because this problem is occurring everywhere. In some some countries uh, the political tradition is much more uh, top down, right? That towns have been told that you know they're not going to be allowed to be rebuilt and they have to move things. In the United States, you know, different states have different traditions too, and I think Connecticut is a home rule state with a strong tradition that people get to do what they want with their own, their own property. And so, my my sense is right now that the uh, towns are going to be reluctant to forbid rebuilding but i i think it's also going to be the case that people it's not going to be a lot of subsidies for rebuilding so people of means who want to live in vulnerable areas will probably be allowed to to uh repair and re- rebuild their their property but it's a totally political decision you know we it, towns can and towns can differ on how they come down on that i think
0: Uh, To that point, we heard from, I believe, Aurora on Facebook who wanted to share, a friend just bought a house on the water in East Haven. He told me that in order to have it raised up and put pylons to protect from flooding, the process would require neighbor approval because this is a public neighborhood. Aurora asks, should neighbors still have the power to veto such an action in these times? Is he wrong or do local governments still need to update their policies to account for climate change? How do you respond to that question?
3: Well, I think it's wise for towns to, to update their policies to account for the effects of climate change and to encourage people to take actions that will make their property more resilient. And that would include elevating their the houses. I think that there'll be some conflict. You know, people might, who are... Maybe inland of the, the the properties which need to be elevated will complain because of obstructions of views, etc. But I think uh, that, that so there's like a, a political compromise needs to be struck, um, and it's not going to be easy. And towns might differ in what they do, but I think it's uh, uh, it's not really a science and or or uh, mathematics problem. It's a, it's a political economics kind of issue that needs to be negotiated.
0: Mm -hmm. And we heard from a resident who had the resources to rebuild after, after Superstorm Sandy, and not a lot of people did in that particular neighborhood that he shared. But, you know, there's also the question of of vulnerable populations that live in some coastal uh, areas in our state. I'm thinking of West Haven, Stamford. you know, people that, you know, are living in poverty. Maybe they depend on multifamily housing, rail transportation, all that will be impacted uh, with these future storms. Are we forgetting them in this conversation?
3: Well, I I think we we don't hear from those people quite as frequently because the the uh, impacts are less uh, direct, perhaps, or maybe perhaps they're not as able to get, attract attention. But the state does have uh, uh, an, an important priority, except vulnerable populations is an important priority. And uh, I think the uh, the last, this fund I mentioned earlier, the bond fund that DEEP is administering, uh, a large fraction of that, I think is 40%, is targeted to benefit environmental justice communities and uh, how that's defined is a little vague right now but that's clearly intent people are aware that uh, that there are uh, lower income people who live in rental housing and perhaps subsidized housing in areas which are prone to flooding they need to be uh, considered their their options need to be considered as well we are uh, several housing public housing complexes have been Um, uh, um, repaired and uh, projects are developing to make them more resilient
0: Again, you're hearing with us here where we live uh, Jim O'Donnell, who is a UConn professor of marine sciences executive director of CIRCA, the Connecticut Institute for Resilience and Climate Adaptation I wanted to bring into the conversation now Bill Lucy, who's Long Island Soundkeeper. Welcome back to the show, Bill
4: Yeah, hi. Thanks, Lucy. Uh, Good to be back.
0: So what are you thinking about uh, in terms uh, of your work as we reflect on the 10-year anniversary of Superstorm Sandy?
4: Well, Jim did a pretty good backdrop for uh, what I'm seeing out on the water and and, uh, the previous caller from Fairfield as well. It's been going really slow. I spent a lot of time on the boat, patrolling along the shorelines looking for pollution sources, but also observing the, all the seawalls and the, uh, marshlands and what's changing and what's not. Um, and it seems like there is some progress, but at the same time, it's, it's just much too slow. I mean, the basic reality is the sound that Jim mentioned is it's moving inland and there's nothing we can do to stop that. And I've talked to contractors that are are putting in new developments along the shoreline. And when they hook into the, the stormwater system for their projects, they see fish down there that come in on the tide. So we're still building in these uh, danger-prone areas. And actually, I took some Circa folks out on a boat ride to some of these areas Uh, a couple years ago and it was amazing that there are additions going on houses and new houses being constructed right on the right in an area that you know if we get another super storm sandy or or something worse they're going to have massive damage um so as i've heard deep say it in the past you know how can we talk about retreat if we can't even stop the advancement
0: Would you say when we we see when you hear and see that you know this these areas are being uh, built up uh, more and more, it's irresponsible.
4: Yeah, I mean it comes down to a basic cost benefit analysis. Uh, I, I used to have a waterfront home in Alaska that I built and had a beautiful view, and my rationalization was that I was in an area where it's isostatic rebound; the glaciers were melting so fast that the the earth's crust was being pushed up by the magma so I, I I rationalized my very vulnerable house based on that fact but if there had been a tsunami or something larger it's it's an unstoppable force so yeah how long are the taxpayers gonna subsidize these decisions that we make based on our preferences I'd love waterfront views uh, my house is worth more because it's on the waterfront Um, And it's really hard. It's very controversial for people to give that up. And I completely understand and relate. Yes, we can elevate our homes, but that's only going to buy us so much time. So I think from a taxpayer
0: viewpoint
4: and an ecological viewpoint, I think it is pretty irresponsible to, to continue building on the shoreline.
0: Mm. Uh, we heard from Mary, who lives in Hartford, uh, who wanted to share, you know, many resources are going to the shore and we're not seeing or overlooking the possibility of flooding inland. Uh, Bill, Lucy, I'll start with you. You know, what's your response to Mary's comment?
4: That's definitely uh, true because Sandy had a greater impact, a more dramatic impact along the shoreline, but uh, the inland flooding is a, is a huge issue. Our stormwater systems are are grossly undersized for the uh, intense rainfalls we're getting. We saw that with Irma and Ida. We had people drowning in in Westchester or the Bronx. Uh, We had cars floating down the street in Hartford. I mean, the system is, is definitely in need of much more attention. And there is, I mean, to be fair, there are people starting to pay attention to this, um, they've mapped out the impervious cover areas. We've um, got a very progressive stormwater, what's called municipal stormwater for MS4 permits, to to try and address some of this. Um, but we need the the cost is huge to actually adequately deal with it. So when we do put in new roads and bridges, we really need to think long and hard about adding extra capacity out to 100, 500 years. So when we do rip up a road and put in a new culvert that it can handle this and that will reduce some of the flooding. Mm -hmm.
0: Jim O'Donnell with Circa, did you want to add to that?
3: Oh yeah, I think that's an excellent point. uh, Inland flooding is a problem. It's probably going to get worse and uh, we are doing things about it. So at Circa, there is. Uh, I mentioned two things. One is we, we have projects uh, in uh, cities like Ansonia and Danbury, where inland flooding from rivers, driven by precipitation, uh, is a problem. And uh, those are those are funded by uh, the, the, the uh, federal and state agencies, and we're trying to develop designs which would re- reduce the impact of these major events. And then secondly, the, the state has uh, enacted a law recently, uh, which authorizes towns to to create what they call stormwater management districts. And uh, in those areas, the the, uh, the properties which uh, have a lot of impermeable cover could be uh, um, asked to pay a fee to, for management of that that uh, water, the runoff from that property. Because there's going to be a need for maintenance and reconstruction of the stormwater management infrastructure, and someone's got to pay, right? So, so this this towns can can kind of elect to tax people uniformly, like make everybody pay, or they can tax or not tax, create create a management fee uh, that is uh, proportional to the amount of stormwater that you generate, mm. and that way you can incentivize people to reduce the amount of impervious cover, or Uh, or or create some on-site storage, but you can either do that or they can uh, pay to have people who are downstream uh, pay less. So those are policy things that that are are being developed that allow towns flexibility to try and generate funds to handle these problems as as we move forward. Mm.
0: Uh, Bill Lucy is still with us, Long Island Soundkeeper. I think I saw... uh, this on Circa's website that uh, after Sandy, uh, 25 million gallons of untreated sewage was spilled into Long Island Sound because of stormwater surge that breached facilities. So for the next big storm, Bill, how will Connecticut facilities fare?
4: Well, I mean, the the, the ugly reality is we still have six combined sewer overflow systems that are in the state of Connecticut. And what that means is when it rains, that rainwater goes down into the same system that's moving sewage to the treatment plant. And they're permitted to discharge that off to the side through CSOs, combined sewage overflow uh, culverts. So anywhere from 700 million to a billion gallons of this diluted sewage is going into Long Island Sound every year. Um, But it used to be a lot worse. I believe there was 18 or more of these. So Connecticut Deep has put in over $3 billion in infrastructure for their sewage treatment plants and collection systems. Um, We have one of the most progressive clean water funding uh, programs in the state, and they have... And this has been for a few years now, um, requirements that if you're going to get state money to protect your sewage treatment uh, plant or your pump stations that move the sewage to the plant, it has to meet the uh, resiliency guidelines, which were developed by CIRCO by Jim. They did a lot of math and figured out a, a projection of what you could expect to see by 2050, and they need to build to those standards. So the money is out there, um, the information and the engineering that you need to uh, to get to is is known as well. So but in the end the collection systems are old. Uh there's lots of them. Um most of the fund is focused on the plants right now and eliminating all CSOs in Connecticut. Uh so it's it's going to be a while. The pipes just get old, tree roots grow through them. I mean some of them were built back in the 20s or earlier. Mm. They're old.
0: Yeah, we'll have to leave it there. But we thank you, Bo Lucy, as always, for coming on the show again, Long Island Soundkeeper. We appreciate it. Also, thanks to Jim O'Donnell, who is executive director of CIRCA, the Connecticut Institute for Resilience and Climate Adaptation. We'll link to on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live more about that event that CIRCA is holding tomorrow at UConn Avery Point. Jim O'Donnell, thank you for your time. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Coming up, we learn more about how Connecticut residents are preparing and how residents respond to evacuation orders. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. We've been reflecting on Superstorm Sandy's impact on our state. This week marks 10 years since the storm caused flooding and damage, also wind damage, power outages. Uh, Joining us now on Zoom is Jennifer Marlin, senior research scientist at the Yale School of the Environment. Uh, She found that only a quarter of coastline residents evacuated during Superstorm Sandy. She studies how the public responds and prepares for extreme weather. Jen, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. Great to be with you. I was a little concerned hearing from uh, Dick earlier that, you know, he chose to ignore the evacuation order uh, and it it worked out for him uh, after Superstorm Sandy. But, you know, when you think about your survey and what coastal residents share with you, can you get into some of those results?
1: Yes, I was a little concerned about that, too. Um, And I think the reason I'm concerned is that right now, well, I think I think there are a fair number of people who feel that way, but we underestimate how fast the climate and our weather patterns are changing. So that's why I say I was concerned. Um, so I conduct a lot of survey research, and um, one of the studies I did was of coastal Connecticut residents uh, a couple of years after Sandy to ask them um, what they did during the storm and why they did it and how they felt about it. And we did we found that, um, first of all, we found that about seventy percent of the residents along the coast who live in an evacuation zone or a place that could, you know be asked to evacuate didn't know that they lived in an evacuation zone. So people aren't even really aware of of where flooding can occur. And then we also um, asked people if they had seen an evacuation map, for example, and 74% said they'd never seen one, so they wouldn't necessarily even know, um, you know, where is safe and where isn't safe. Um, So, and overall, we found... That there were about one out of five or about 20% of people who said that they would definitely evacuate if they were told to leave or asked to leave. Um, But there was an equal number who said that even if they were told to leave, they would not go pretty much no matter no matter what, because they feel safe and confident that they can ride out the storm. Um, So... There's there's and there's a spectrum. There are many people in the middle and some people who would want to go, but they have, you know, serious constraints that make it difficult. Um, And there are other folks who uh, just think they live farther inland. They don't really have to think about this issue at all.
0: Mm. And for those who live further inland, is it just, oh, I'll buy a generator, I'll be fine. Mm-hmm.
1: I, I think so, yes. And I think a lot of people don't realize that it isn't necessarily just the water coming directly into your house. It's also the communication systems that can fail and the transportation systems. All, you know, the roads may be blocked. Um, we might not have electricity and power. So there are other reasons to try to get a little bit farther inland away from the coast and the worst of the storm, the wind and the flooding. Um, there are other reasons to make sure that you, you know, you do go somewhere safer. Mm.
0: So this survey was done a few years after Superstorm Sandy. I'm hoping you can tell me by 2022, people are taking this more seriously. If not, what are the reasons? Are, Are people discounting, you know, this crisis that we face, you know, around the globe, this crisis of changing climate? And, you know, it's just not something that's front and center for them.
1: Mm-hmm. I think people have prepared a bit more. Um, and as we heard from the previous conversation, um, people are definitely trying to think about policies and actions that we can take to, to build resilience. Um, the costs are high, of course, and the decisions are really difficult. But, uh, but I think you're right. People... Um, are not taking it seriously. And I think in large part, it's because we're not talking about it as much as we need to. We're not talking about um, how much of the impacts we're already seeing, the fact that we're already over one degree Celsius, you know, warmer than we were 50, 60 years ago, that sea levels have already risen. um, And that even though it seems like it's quite gradual, the rate of increase is increasing. And so... I think we're we're really not prepared um, for how quickly things are going to continue changing. Um, and, and this is, uh, I think some people think the issue is um, really about polar bears and, you know, ice melting in Greenland or things happening far away. Um, th- they still think it's sort of, you know, something that's that's not going to affect them personally. And in fact, we've asked that question on our survey and in Connecticut, for example, Seventy seven percent of people in Connecticut thinks that climate change is going to harm plants and animals or future generations. But when we say, uh, do you think it will harm people in the United States? About 68 percent say yes. in in the United States, so a majority. But when we ask them, do you think that climate change or global warming is going to harm you personally? It drops to less than half, only 48 percent. So people still think we're somehow individually protected from this when, uh, you know, the reality is we're all already feeling the economic impacts. Mm -hmm. Um, We're all suffering from more uh, severe heat during the summer, um, increased air pollution uh, due to the heat and many other impacts, including things like flooding. Mm -hmm.
0: You're hearing uh, with us here where we live, Jennifer Marlin, senior research scientist at the Yale School of the Environment. I wanted to go back to um, what you shared that was alarming. When when we think about when there are evacuation orders, the people that don't even know where the evacuation zone is or how to evacuate. So I think that speaks to municipal leaders needing to do a better job communicating that. But in terms of getting Getting the information to residents when there is an impending uh, storm coming, you know, what will make the difference uh, where they will decide, you know, it's safer for us to evacuate? There's a reason there's an evacuation order. What did you find, Jennifer?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, So what the main determining factor as to whether people go or not during a hurricane is whether they – received an official notice, what they perceive as an official advisory to leave. And so people will often wait until they hear that, that notice. And sometimes people are called, but they say they didn't get the phone call or they didn't hear it. Um, and so it's hard to get that notice out and, you know, really, yeah, people are waiting for a knock on the door or a phone call or a, a personal request. Um, Saying that you in your neighborhood, on your block, in your house, it's time to go. And that's a really high bar. That's a lot of work to have to go door to door or to, you know, go down every street with the sirens or put the signs out. And so people need to take to be more proactive and to make a plan in advance and not wait to the last minute for that phone call. Um, they need to be monitoring the weather and Um, You need to think about it beforehand, ideally, because if it's within, you know, six or even 12 hours of when the worst of the storm is supposed to hit, it's too late. That's, you know, you should have already left by then. Um, And I think what we need to realize is that the past is really not a good predictor of the future anymore. And I know a lot of people are concerned about, you know, weather hype and things like that. Um, so it is, it, they can be difficult decisions. You don't want to waste effort.
0: Jennifer Marlin, again, is a senior research scientist at the Yale School of the Environment. Thank you for sharing um, some of your research with us and gave, gave us a lot to think about here, Jen. Uh, we appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer today was Dylan Reyes. Uh, Coming up tomorrow, Alexandra Horowitz is a dog cognition scientist. She's the author of several books about canine companions. On the next Where We Live, we hear about her year of the puppy and what she learned along the way. Of course, we want to hear from you, too, about your furry best friend. You can also ask Alexandra a question. That show tomorrow.